Hello and welcome to the Newspaste podcast. My name's Johnny Vedmore and I'm here with someone really special today, someone who's going to fill up my mind with information and if you sit and listen to us then you'll hear that same information and hopefully you'll be able um, to understand what's really been going on over the past, I mean, I, I, I say 50, 60, 70 years, but it's probably more like 100 years, probably more like 1,000 years. 127-ish. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, okay. I, 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 I would be willing to go back a little bit further. And that voice you hear there, that's the voice of Corey Hughes. And you can find Corey Hughes at coreyhughes.org. And he's a fantastic researcher. I mean, mind-blowing. I've been looking forward to this one because mine, as as my most of you listeners will know, my knowledge is about these times back in Harvard in the fifties and sixties, and all of these New World Order elites and how the CIA was formed and some of the little stories lingering around there. And of course, you know, I I've been building up to researching something in particular and especially recently with my black hand series i'm i'm leading up to researching what this guy is possibly the top researcher in the world for so uh, i i i mean it you have proven yourself at least to me um and i'm sure our conversation now is going to to everybody uh, exactly your credentials and your knowledge on the subject so Corey hughes can you introduce yourself to this audience sure my name is Corey hughes i'm a historian and i guess now i can call myself an author considering i'm about to finish my book um congrats about, about 15 chapters i have uh the one i'm on now and two additional chapters and i'm done uh, it's been a long haul uh the book itself has been in the works for over a year but my research began in July of 2018. Um, I mean, technically, I, I got into history in 2015, and I spent three years on World War II and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And when you study the Holocaust, it will undoubtedly lead you to the doorsteps of Kennedy. And so when I realized the connection there and made the connection, I was like, I needed to know this my whole life. So let's go, let's do this thing. And I spent um, literally three years nonstop um, putting in like 12 hour days, like every day, seven so, days a week. So I, you're, mean, I killed them. You're telling me, you're, you're, te you're, you're telling me that before what, about 2018 or is it 2015 that you actually started writing? Um, no, I started writing a year ago, but I started the research in Kennedy in July 2018. Right. So you were doing just like video stuff and, and audio stuff before when you were putting out uh, that sort of so, stuff. So um, I used to work with an anonymous group. We used to run the Anon HQ website. That was like the anonymous website for years. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I got my start in freelance writing. And I, I launched the anonymous podcast and I, uh, and I basically had um, gotten my you know, feet wet about 2014. And I had met so many incredible researchers. I was like, well, I was a cop for almost 10 years. I have multiple degrees. I have thousands of hours of training and, and experience in actual real world investigations. And I was like, I'm going to take on the biggest, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to study all the world's mysteries and figure them all out. And so um, in 2015, I was really uh, into studying the Holocaust. And like I said, we, we won't talk about that today, but that led me to Kennedy. And by 2018, I had already pretty much um, figured out how, how research worked, you know, uh, or at least I thought I had. 
because when you're when you're studying World War II, there's not a lot of dots to connect. There's a lot of information out there, and just it's about understanding the totality of what happened. When it comes to Kennedy, there's no information out there on what really happened. It is a whole bunch of dots that are scrambled, and I was like, in 50, 60 years, nobody can figure out who the shooter on the grassy knoll is. I was like, bullshit. <laughs> uh, so um, that was my only goal. I needed to know who the shooter on the knoll was. That's and, it. And and do, do you think that you got there in the end then? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I've, I, know, I know everything that happened. Um, and I even see the connections to other things that people don't know about, like Israeli sabotage of our nuclear submarines, uh, but specifically the Thresher and the Scorpion. Like, there's no information on those. Um, when I was going through uh, my Kennedy research, I came across what I believe is to be another political assassination that no one's ever known or talked about. Um, so yeah, in the, in the course of my, my first three years of studying World War II, I, under, I got a grip on how to go about doing research and how to go about finding sources and looking for what I call hooks, you know, hooks. That yeah, yeah. Certain okay. things. And this, so, is, this is really what listening to you is really giving me, filling me full of, I, I mean, I talked about this to a few researchers recently behind the scenes. Um, like what you were talking about hooks, I I, I probably described as uh, as markers, like things uh, that that y you can you can tell uh, someone does something, and you can insinuate further because everybody who you pass who have that marker or that certain uh, trait uh, will will be doing a certain thing with a certain amount of people, and it's usually naughty, and you can usually find evidence, and you can usually find, and you can make a assumptions when you're investigating uh, because it, those assumptions will lead you to it, it just propel you and motivate you to investigate further and that investigation further will bring up more information and and you look at things through different lenses so i f i feel really passionate about um, wanting to teach people how to research and it's obviously something that you've had experience with. What was it like being uh, trained professionally then to investigate? Is there a massive difference? Do you feel that there's, um, and I see a dog in the background, a leash being taken off you when you, that you can now investigate things uh, independently? Well, um, the, the, the comparison I'll make is that like independent researchers who have never actually worked in law enforcement, who have actually put together cases, because that's what you're trying to do. Like with Kennedy, you're trying to make a case. And that's what cops do every single day. And so one of the biggest things that really kind of caught me by surprise was um, in, a, in a police situation, let's say you have like a home invasion robbery, right? And uh, the victim is killed. And then um, it turns out that the boyfriend has a red Mustang, okay? Now you know, if you want to think, if you think the, sus if the boyfriend had something to do with it, you're going to be looking for a witness who might have seen a, a red Mustang, right? And so then when you find the four houses down, you have a witness who saw the red Mustang in the, you're like, okay, as a police officer, that's case closed. The boyfriend was there, the red Mustang, Mustang was seen. Therefore, they have a direction and they know where to go with the case. But in the Kennedy assassination, like I ha have a gross like dis disgust for Kennedy researchers in general uh, because they're generally some of the dumbest people on the fucking planet. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would say I, I would say that um, there will be a lot akin to how I feel about jack the researcher rippers as well um going back all the way to the 1800s even the start of the case the people right at the start were trying to make something fantastical out of it rather than actually looking at the right. evidence 
Well, that one was pretty simple. I mean, that was uh, what Aaron Kosminski was Jack the Ripper. Oh, I disagree completely. I will bring I I, me and you. We can have a talk about this once I've written up my uh, (laughs) thesis. I've written um, a little bit on it already, but I I I will disagree massively with uh, because you're talking about the butcher. um, Um, Well, his DNA was linked to the shawl that was connected to a victim. And it was verified by genetics a hundred years later. Um, I, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know uh, what's said. I, the key, I, I will look forward to speaking about this case because there, I, I have many reasons why that is partially right and partially wrong. Um, but the, 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 I agree completely. The, 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 the wonderful thing about doing research is that we come to our conclusions for our own evidence. And then, right. like you say, we're able to build our case. Now, if, if I come to you and I'm pretty positive from looking at your work and listening to what you say, um, that if I come to you with very good evidence that you may change your mind dependent on the evidence you're given. And I think that's what both our complaints are with other researchers right. is that, that they, they have their set ideas right at the start you know people want it to be um uh jack the ripper to have been a, a long mustache twiddling aristocrat right. connected right. to the the biggest people um on the planet but uh, well, actually... from what i can tell just in the very brief amount of time that i spent on it it appears as though kosminski is the guy they suspected him as being the guy and he was intentionally protected at the time because ultimately his actions were jewish ritual murders in as far as the way he removed and cleaned the organs and all that stuff. So if you haven't looked into that angle of it, take I, a look at that angle. And I, 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 I have, and I also know there's um, another person who we can talk about. Uh, like I say, we are going to have a very good relationship because <laughs> uh, we can actually talk about these things and we can oh, I disagree. I saw some of your work and I was like, this is going to be my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the best thing about doing this sort of stuff is that you have to be completely and utterly passionate because you have to spend a load of time looking through loads of documents and loads of just i i i um, spend time on such minutiae that the average person would look at and be like what are you doing I'm like, I need to know what color her dress was. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. it's like so, I, so stupid that. But there's you need been to a, a, some of the lines in in my work have been two days of research for a line just and and at right? the end yes. of it, I think why, but then I know why because uh, the the uh, it's about putting every single bit of information out there so that people can see the whole thing. Um, rather that that's at least my approach, rather than uh, selected pieces. So I, I I dig you on that. We on on the fact that that uh, other researchers in these fields tend to um be found wanting and have been found wanting for hundreds of years to be honest well and um, i can tell you with specifically in kennedy there have been things introduced that were 100 percent cointel pro um monitored by the fbi um i have been kicked out of literally every jfk research forum that there is the split second i mentioned israel and their connection through meyer lansky and all that stuff they fucking their hair gets set on fire i get flamed and then i get banned yeah so well it's not as a surprise can you give some people because i know loads of i i've heard lots of stories um can you give uh people an idea of who meyer lansky was oh yeah um in a nutshell i'll give you the short version and the slightly longer version in the short version Meyer Lansky was the boss of all bosses of the mafia of all time. 
he's amazing in the he's just astounding. Like, yeah. Um, people don't understand. Like, um, he was the man behind the scenes who made the money. He set up the drug trafficking routes. He I mean, he started Murder Inc. He spoke and the and everyone listened. That's how Meyer Lansky operated. His connections were so much deeper than the US mafia. His connections were directly to Ben Gurion himself via the Sonborn Institute. I'm sure you're familiar with that, going back to 45 and the large-scale weapon smuggling operations out of the country. Um, I mean, so the mafia created the state of Israel. They would, there would be no state of Israel or any of that shit if it wasn't for the large-scale smuggling operations being done, headed by Meyer Lansky and his U.S. mafia. Um, so, yeah, like, Meyer Lansky was the man. Like, and I, there's a couple things that really shocked me, like, his name is starting to come up in, in, in like mainstream conversations. There was a movie with Harvey Keitel, Lansky, which was unbelievable because they included a scene in there, which was actually not historically accurate, but it represented the meetings between Lansky and Reuven Daphne and the original days of the Haganah and how they formed the relationships with, you know, Bugsy Siegel and those guys out in L.A. And so, yeah, like it's amazing how much information has come out on Meyer Lansky, but still. Um, you'll never find a document connecting him to the Kennedy assassination, but you don't have to because he was the man. He was the American point of contact for the mafia. So, Do, do you think that push uh, in the media, in movies, movies like Goodfellas and the like, do you think that was a push to kind of like uh, make anybody you think about the mob uh, think about Italians? And well, not, let's see. Well, let's talk about that in particular. Who, what movie in particular pushed the Sicilian Italian narrative of the mob? What was the one? There's a few. Um, the God, well, The Godfather was the yeah, one, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, they're free. At the time of The Godfather's ma making, the man who oversaw the making of The Godfather also happened to be the head of the Motion Picture Association of America at the time and was also the man who shot Kennedy from the grassy knoll. And that is the one and only Jack Valente. Um, Jack Valente is the man who basically, um, you're probably a little younger than I am, but we grew up in the same era. Every single bit of television, movies, anything that came out of Hollywood between 1966 and 2004 had to have the seal of approval of Jack Valente. And Jack Valente was a lifelong CIA agent. He had to have worked for the OSS during World War II. Um, and he was Hollywood's propagandist. He created the, mo the motion picture rating system that we all know of, um, since you know, we were kids. Um, that was all the work of the CIA, right? So Jack Valente was rewarded with his role in, basically he was one of the major orchestrators of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and he was rewarded uh, in 66. He took over the Motion Picture Association of America. And that was when the MPAA really had its rise because prior to him, even though there was an MPAA, Hollywood was really run by Lou Wasserman at Universal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, um, his, um, his uh, I think it might be his grandson. I can't remember if his son or his grandson, uh, Casey Vas uh, Wasserman, changed his name back to Wasserman um, and was on Jeffrey Epstein's uh, plane in 2002 or 2003, I think it was maybe. Oh, yeah. Well, um, see, Epstein, and I'm, you know about Robert Maxwell and all okay. the, the history of the, you know, um, international sex trade well that's you could trace that go back even further you can trace that to like the bobby baker scandal um in the 1960s prior to um lyndon johnson taking over right so that was all going on at the time kennedy was killed the bobby baker scandal was again full swing and the bobby baker scandal um there was one 
in particular, uh, a Soviet spy who John Kennedy was sleeping with named Romesh. I, forget, I always forget her first name. Uh, and she was part of Bobby Baker's ring. And then that was about to come out too when Kennedy got killed. And so there was a lot going on with that. But that ring also connected to um, Carlos Marcelo in um, New Orleans, right? And then Carlos Marcelo uh, obviously had a, 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 an operation that stretched at least uh, to, to Dallas and Houston uh, because Jack Ruby was basically running prostitutes and uh, people who were being trafficked um, between uh, Dallas and Miami back in back in the in, in that day. So and that connects us to like the Rocheremy story and all that stuff. It was it's such a, a massive. You, you say about the media, and then you say it goes back to like uh, Vassaman and his empire, and a lot of this has obviously this. And this is what we were talking about. Really, is that it does have that um, Israeli connection, the Jewish mob. I say Israeli connection, but um, a, a lot of the them, I think, uh, uh, what Ashkenazi Jews um, who uh, set up a lot of the infrastructure under underneath America, the mob infrastructure. I've um I I did a lot of research about uh Wexner and a lot of his allies in his rise um mm-hmm. when I was helping out with Whitney Webb's uh books um and there was there was a there was a certain period where their organization level um was beyond uh anything that was anywhere nearby i mean their ability to organize and um infiltrate organizations was just it was mob like mob like and i i think that was like you had so many different levels of these um uh of, of basically jewish mafia within this this circle so i'm 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 not i'm not surprised i've always built up to jfk you know i've gone back to some of the most beautiful mysteries of the past and i've just been pulling them apart and one thing that i now I, and i want to ask you from my own work is um what you know i i look at uh the creation of something like the german marshall fund um that i wrote about and i look there's a picture of all of these guys these new world order guys you know these are john mccloy uh these are these are um uh david rockefeller uh loads of the 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 people who were part of that new world order and they all look like gangsters standing outside they're all cfr members all council on foreign relation members right well you bring up um you also you mentioned um so that connects mccloy uh, connects the marshall fund to operation mockingbird because Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of the funding was coming from mockingbird so really from the marshall fund oh my Mm -hmm. lord i'm not surprised at all because that was i mean they didn't start their training organizations till 1982 and i've been trying to work out and trying to understand what they would be doing between 1972 and 1982 that was uh make you know worth so much money to the german government when they actually set up uh the gmf but you see organizations like that and you see gangsters standing outside we've got different levels of gangsters different sets but when they all need to when it can all make money they'll all work together and is this what the kennedy assassination was like uh was it because the way i i seen it was like it it manifested because there was a load of different people who said let's work together and that working together hadn't properly been done before or that sort of level. And afterwards, that led to kind of the mafia uh, being infiltrated completely by intelligence and intelligence just becoming the mafia. That's how I see it. Would you see it the same way or differently? 
close. That's very similar. Really, it goes back to, I'd say, like this, the path that's, that started to lead us to where we are today began in the first six months of 1945. And <coughs> I say that because it was towards the end of 1943 that the, uh, the fate of Hitler and the National Socialists was kind of done. Like by the end of 43, the war was on a, well on its way to have being lost. And the man who was the head of uh, Adolf Hitler's army and the head of his intelligence was Reinhard Galen. And so Reinhard Galen is by far one of the most important people in, in history in as far as sculpting the 20th century. Um, so Reinhard Galen knew the war was over. And so he ends up in a camp well, let me back up. Late 43, he starts to come up with a plan to ensure his own survival. And so he takes all of Germany's intelligence and basically has his men scatter it throughout Europe, kind of like the rumors of the Nazi gold, right? Scatter all throughout Europe. So, but Reinhard Galen actually did this with all of, his, all of Germany's intelligence. And then when he ends up in a camp in early 45, he presents himself as Reinhard Galen. And so Donovan and fucking Alan Dulles are like, <laughs> whoa. Whoa, Donovan whoa, and Dulles, of course, are some of the biggest uh, characters in history, especially with they the, the war. They're the forefathers yeah. of American intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Period. Yeah, Donovan is the man. Yeah, um, Don Donovan is definitely the man. These guys are fucking like 33rd degree Freemasons, part of the World Brotherhood, part of P2. Were they, were, were they Scottish right? Were they, were they that sort of like, I, I, I don't understand the Masonry thing, but I've I don't really to... understand it too much either, but I can tell you 100% of Mason lodges in America were opened by Jews. So mm -hmm. um, it's a, for me, the Masons are a front organization to recruit the Goyim into the Jewish um, mindset establishment. Uh, but let me get back to Reinhard Galen. So Reinhard Galen cuts a deal with Dulles and Donovan. They go on, he goes on to end up forming what's called, known as the Galen Organization, which is really like the largest like spy, turnkey spy organization absorbed by the CIA at the end of the war. Uh, some estimate his network was as big as 700,000 and it was mostly centered in the Soviet Union, the spy networks within the Soviet Union and basically had established it during the war to counter the Soviets after the war, right? So that was kind of like the purpose of him building his network. Um, so basically between 45 and 47, allegedly there's no CIA, there's no OSS, right? So allegedly nothing's going on. But no, that's like the most two most important two years in fucking American intelligence history um, because it was those two years that Reinhard Galen um, with Dulles and all these, like literally hundreds of Nazi generals, um, they funneled over 230,000 Nazis out of Europe and North Africa into South America, right? So when people talk about paperclip where they took a couple hundred scientists, that's a joke. They funneled a third of the goddamn remaining Nazi army out of fucking, mm -hmm. out of Europe into South America, right? So that's why like you have such a strong German presence in Argentina. Um, I, I, I've experienced them down in, in Chile. Um, I was living in Chile for the past six months and uh, there's plenty of German settlements down in the south uh, and they're very uh, clearly Germans <laughs> you know proper proper blonde hair blue eyes um, speaking to the accent <laughs> that's my terrible racist German accent <laughs> and and, uh, and they'd, um, they they whenever you, you see them they keep themselves to themselves they just don't talk to anybody else they, I, I think I think it's like uh, generationally they they keep that that fear yeah. that they're going to be discovered for something in the past 
So um, Frank, uh, what was his name? Uh, Sheehan, the guy who was the lawyer for Watergate with the big blonde. You know what I'm talking about? The white hair? I forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I know who you're talking about. I've read. Uh, he, he was a lawyer for something else as well as Watergate yeah, yeah. as well. I, yeah. I, I've been something um, I read in. I met him at a conference in um, Las Maybe Vegas. Maybe it was the murder of Orlando Letelier. Maybe he was also... Anyway, quite sorry, possibly, sorry, go on. Quite possibly. But I met him and I showed him my Kennedy evidence and stuff. And I can tell you, well, I'm going to get to my point of bringing him up in the first place, but um, he's a gatekeeper for sure. He has some key documents. He confirmed that he has that he won't release that are will prove the Kennedy assassination was an inside, inside job, right? So, but anyway, he did fantastic work on the Galen organization and... Um, he tells a story in one of his presentations about a guy named Joseph Berkheimer Smith, who was the number two guy for the CIA station down in Mexico City uh, in the 1970s, right? And so he tells this long story about how um, Berkheimer is approached by Mexican FBI, and they tell him that they're going to, um, a plane is going to come and pick him up tomorrow, and he needs to go with them, and they're going to, you know, have some kind of meeting. So Berkheimer gets picked up and he gets flown to Argentina from Mexico City. And he tells the story to Sheehan about being driven in a Jeep, uh, you know, through the mountains. And all of a sudden they're in this like Bavarian village, like in the middle of the jungle. And um, he, they, they walk into this, uh, this like pub, like German style pub. And there's like a huge like 30 foot swastika flag, like hanging. On the yeah, wall. yeah. Yeah. And they so. basically sit him down and they basically explain to him how they just set up this guy named Pablo Escobar uh, in Colombia and they're going to be running this cocaine operation and they'll be able to make as much money as they need to fight their enemies forever. Mm -hmm. um, and so Berkheimer then basically says, well, I can't believe you're trying to recruit me into this. And he, and they basically say to him, Oh, we're not trying to recruit you into this. We want to let you know who's doing this. So, you know, watch out, don't cross our path, right? Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't uh, destined to stay with uh, the Mexico City office for too much longer after that. Mm -hmm. But that just goes to show the relationship between the, the Galen organization, you know, post 45, um, when he was brought to South America uh, and, the, and, the, and the reach that they had, because like the Galen organization was massive. I mean, it ended up in the millions uh, during the Cold War. And if you ask me, the logistics specialist who, put together how the actual assassination would go down was probably Reinhard Galen himself. That's um, quite, that, that's, I mean, it's amazing. Um, there was this change in that period. You talk about the importance of the, for the, the six months after um, the end of world war uh, two, and then the, the, the few years afterwards as well, how, how massively important it is. And people really underestimate what what was going on during that period and the attempts to uh, capitalize because they knew that they were going straight into another war and they knew that the the, the borders would be set with Russia um, and that war was a cold war of course and lots of pro uh, posturing but in actual fact it has been a war it's just been proxy wars all over the place um, lots of uh, a, a kind of economic war then a policy war uh, and it's continued to ch shift and change until now it's almost come back to the same place. And the things I'm hearing now, uh, the rhetoric that I hear uh, that I've studied in the 1950s and it, it, there's a, a, a point in um, uh, the post-World War II era where they just basically took over the universities 
and they started really implanting lots of people. So you mentioned that uh, there's links with the the GMF. What other sort of university activity um, do you know about during this period, sort of like just after the World War? Well, <clears throat> and as far as just after the World War, um, I don't have too much information. I can tell you this much. I'm going to talk a little bit about Jack Valente because it connects to all this stuff. So uh, Jack Valente was the shooter on the knoll. There were actually two shooters on the grassy knoll. David Ferry was the first who fired the throat shot. The second shooter was Jack Valente, who I've God, already said. David Ferry's an odd looking fella. I mean, yeah. he, he portrayed quite well in the movie. But I mean, when you yes, actually, yes. <laughs> when you look at him, it's just, wow, that's an odd looking fella. So um, Jack Valente, um, this, this will connect to exactly what we're talking about in Harvard and all that stuff. So, um, so Jack Valente is born in 1921, September 5th, 1921. And he, by the age of 15, okay, by 1936, He's working as a hall boy for Humble Oil, who is owned by Prescott Bush, George Bush. Um, Jack Valente worked with George DeMornshield. And if mm -hmm. you know about Kennedy, Oswald's one of Oswald's handlers in Dallas, uh, oil man, George DeMornshield, um, he was working for Humble Oil and knew Jack Valente when Jack Valente was a teenager. Okay, so that's Jack Valente's background. He ends up going to the University of Texas in Houston um, where midway through, he's still working for Humble Oil. He's, he's with them for like 17 years and he ends up going off to the war. Okay, this is where things get interesting because his war record is a crock of bullshit. Um, allegedly, Jack Valenti goes off to the war where he's a bombing, he's an Air Force uh, pilot and he does like 50 bombing missions. But I've torn apart his war record and none of the companies that he's supposed to have belonged to list him as having belonged to it. So he was uh -huh. not a fucking bombing mission. He lied about all that stuff. Um, he was obviously a trained assassin at that time. Um, and I have, some, I have some information that would imply he actually worked uh, with the OSS, who were doing some backdoor dealings with the Nazis at okay, the time. This sounds. The this sounds a lot like um, I, I someone who, who matches this mo in in that sort of era and that sort of period, running in the same circles. Uh, um, Tom Corbley. That sounds a bit like who was. Uh, have you ever heard of Tom Corbley? No. Oh, you will love learning about Tom <laughs> Corbley. He's a, a special one indeed, a special one indeed, but very much like that, an assassin. Uh, stories about Tom Corbley was he was the guy who stood next to a line of German soldiers and some would say, now you, one of you are going to tell us everything we didn't need to know. And they'd say no, wouldn't say anything. And then Tom Corbley would be the one to execute them, just shoot mm -hmm. them in the head. And then that would uh, urge the others on to do He was a really the guy who did the really dirty stuff. He also has there's also masses of evidence that he supplied a lot of women to JFK. Um, and he's a massively important part of um, like linking up the British side with the American side. So he spent a lot of time in London as well. So Mo Tom Corbley is one of the most under the radar people. He eventually went on to work for Kroll Associates, if you know oh, Kroll. I know all about them. <laughs> yeah, who does? I mean, anybody who does research like us always ends up at Kroll's door and you go, <laughs> that's really a horrible place like that's where the, all of the horrible secrets are um right where were we sorry that was really all right so so jack valenti gets back yeah. from the war and he finishes up his degree at the university of texas in houston and he applies to harvard business school and so he gets rejected because he was a bc student he is not a great student um and actually you know I caught some inconsistencies in his uh, alleged behaviors while before he even went to the fucking war. 
um, allegedly he was working with their football team and doing, he had to miss some school because of he was doing some promotion for the f- school football team. But then in his FBI file, when they went and interviewed that coach, they're like, who are you talking about? I never had any help with this football team. And they, so he lied about doing stuff with the football team while he was before he even went to the war. Right. So um, he was obviously being groomed and probably passed around from the time he was 15 mm-hmm. working at fucking humble oil. Right. So um but anyway, he gets rejected from Harvard Business School. So what does he do? He flies up there. He spends the weekend with the dean. And then he comes home. And then he is all of a sudden, not only is he accepted, he's put into their accelerated honors program. Okay. And so he gets his master's degree at Harvard in 18 months. He's done by 48. And Whoa. who else was at fucking Harvard in 48? Well, Kissinger's there. Henry Kissinger. Yeah, Henry yeah, Kissinger. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few exactly. of the really and and the people who were around, the people who were were um, taking these people and deciding where they go were people like George McBundy, who of course yes. is massively asso- associated with. He was serving under JFK. I can't remember which position. And he was, he was, in, was also busted important. having a sexual relationship with Valenti. Oh, really? Not a surprise, George Bundy. He's got a name. Like, who has a name? No, sorry. All of those guys Muck were George Bundy. I, I, I say it wrong every time because my brain can't register it. Muck George Bundy. Who has a name right. like Muck right. George? Who has a name like Muck George? I, I mean, it's suspicious. But it, Muck George Bundy is the guy who, who said to Kissinger, no, don't go to the FBI. Come to the CFR. Um, and a lot of these guys seem to end up going through that route. Like, there's a lot of training, but a lot of it was Harvard through that period the, the concentration uh, i mean the cia projects were echoed um as they happened as the creation of the cia happened and as you had the first coups at the same time kissinger's running his uh kissinger's international seminar to train yep. young leaders to put yep. eventually into the roles of these coups of course it doesn't work as fast as they want you know they it, it's a, a, a much longer term project training young leaders it's it turned out and after 17 years, they get found out. But they had a lot of time doing it. And they, they were starting to do that. Um, uh, but it's also, uh, I take it you've come across, um, what's his name? William Yandel Elliott as well, who's one of the big people. He was Kissinger's mentor. If you're looking for someone who was probably involved, he was an advisor to six presidents, I think, including Kennedy. And he's basically um, the hidden voice of the and hand of like this New World Order mm. group. Go on. Well, the way I see it, the way I see it, this this entire push for this new world order. Let's be like very specific on what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a Jewish Zionist push to take over the world. End of story. That's what it is. It traces back to 1897. Theodor Herzl. This is not even like this isn't even conspiracy. They fucking openly write about this stuff. These mm-hmm. people are so arrogant. They uh, if you go back and read the minutes from the early Zionist Congress, it's ridiculous. Well, I mean, you 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 see this. There is a um, counter push. At this moment you're talking about, where they're basically expressing what they want, and Truman and people are completely bending to their will, there is a counter-push by the people like the American Friends of the Middle East, uh, Kermit Roosevelt uh, Jr. Um, uh, Plus many of the Orthodox groups... Yeah, Gildersleeves and others, they they set up groups to be like, no, we have to, basically it was a load of anti-Zionist groups that got made by the people who formed the CIA, some of the main people, and they were over, um, they they were, their opinion was constantly pushed to the side and they were completely, uh, their their fears were completely uh, brushed aside. It seemed like by 1967 then, that was like, it it, it peaked and 
they knew all of those people knew that they could no longer even talk about it that much and they had to just remain low because all of the attacks became like focused at these people who had obviously been what they considered anti-semites but were just anti-zionists you know right they, they tried to paint go on right but here but but in touching on the the anti-semitism anti-zionist conundrum that we have the problem is while there's only a very few percentage of the people who are Jewish or identify as Ashkenazi Jews are actual real diehard Zionists. Mm -hmm. The Zionists have done an amazing job over the last hundred years of pulling the average, the orthodoxy and the secular Jews into their cause to support Israel. When you look at polls, 80 to 90% of Ashkenazi Jews have a strong emotional connection to the state of Israel, mm -hmm. which is hilarious because that isn't even where the original fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. temple was, right? So when you go back in history, the original temple was most likely in Northern Ethiopia and the original fucking uh, Israelites were about as black as fucking night. Yeah, Seriously, yeah, like, yeah, 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 There yeah. was not a white Jew on planet earth until 740 AD when the Khazars <laughs> were <laughs> to convert by the Russians. And this, if you ask me where all the Russian hate comes from throughout history is because the Russians drove the Khazars out of the land, which is currently now the Donbass region in the Ukraine, right? Which mm -hmm. Russia just fucking annexed. So in reality, the true Ashkenazi Jewish homeland being the Ukraine, the Russians just annexed their homeland. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, yeah. what this is all about. Yeah. That's what this whole fucking war is about. It has uh, nothing to do with none of the other modern political bullshit. It is a thousand year old grudge. I have no doubts whatsoever. I, I find I find the whole fact that you can't talk about this stuff uh, a course so contrived because they need to create this uh, so they can continue on the path of what they think is 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 the right path. And I read this article. I can't remember who it was by. It's so so annoying. Is um and I'm not into genetics. I'm quite opposite to to like how they manipulate genetic research nowadays. I don't trust genetic research in the hands of the geneticists of today. Um, but, uh, but the and I won't give my my codes over my genetic code over to them willingly. Um, but still, uh, I see positive sides in things like the twenty three and Me, where you can have your uh, DNA tested. And I this one Jewish author commentator who is uh, quite big. I think he wrote for the New York Times, and he did a um, a test, and he just stopped being a Zionist afterwards. He was like, "It's no, not it's nowhere near related to me. Uh, no one I." Know know yeah i know uh, i've ever been related to actually comes from any of those areas or I ever did any of those things and i live in someone else's dream and it was really <laughs> amazing to hear how uh just given a different perspective and i think genetic perspective is a completely you know, most of the people in my country in britain do not know what genetics they are they think they're British. The Welsh think they're Welsh and the Scottish think they're Scottish and the English think they're English. And in actual fact, the English is broken up into about uh, 10, maybe 12 different tribal ethnic origins. Uh, Wales is five different um, ethnic origins, uh, like the heliotypes, genetic, he like separate from, from each other, um, come from separate areas, separate tribes that didn't intermarry with each other right. because natural borders still remained over time that's what's amazing west wales you've got uh, uh southwest wales uh, southwest wales and northwest wales are two different genetics and even mm -hmm. though they were next to each other they remained two separate genetics for mm -hmm. over a thousand years for sure because they just didn't they didn't find each other you know you're not the same as me you know and they feel a bit like that now if you scat i find uh, w what you were talking about as well with um 
the smuggling rings, the Israeli smuggling rings that were happening just post World War Two. Now, I you read um, the 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 piece I did about Stanley Setti and the murder of Stanley Setti, and he was actually uh, supposedly a smuggler um, helping with this trade, smuggling guns and arms uh, ac- across and cars um, across uh, from France to either Israel or to Britain. Uh, I think they'd bring him to Britain. Uh, he'd run him through a garage, make him legit, and then they'd send him back with guns in them and send him up to Israel. Um, and and that seems to be lots of the, the where the money is made by gangsters is whatever job comes around at the time. Right. And, and post-World War II, there was loads of guns everywhere, and it was obvious that um, people, because I've done a lot of research, which I haven't released yet, which I'm looking forward to releasing, about Nahum Goldman, who's Guido Goldman, who set up the German yep. Marshall Fund, his father's Nahum Goldman, who was one of the real founding fathers, one of the many founding fathers he of was a horrible Israel. fucking human being. I know, I know. Oh man, this is fantastic. I mean, I think I put it in the um, in uh, the GMF article, if I can find it to, uh, to, to quote soon. But there's a fantastic uh, piece about him. He's just... He is his life is just extraordinary because at one point in I think about nineteen seventeen around that time he's working for German intelligence, um, and, and you know it's it's, it's it goes round in a big circle. He claims to be fleeing from uh, persecution, but they were living in in Switzerland and they had lots of support, and he was just like uh, one of the heads of Zionism, one of the people who made it happen who created it and what he did to um, manipulate people and um uh, make everything work his way is quite extraordinary uh when you go through like the original zionist text like the diary of herzl you come to realize they don't really give a shit about non-zionists if you're a jew and you're not a zionist you're just might as well be fucking ground into dust like everyone else yeah um and when you get into what really happened during the holocaust and you come to realize there were no gas chambers there was no plan to kill all the jews and there weren't even six million goddamn jews living in europe at the time the whole holocaust story is bullshit Mm -hmm. um when you come to understand how the zionists in particular manipulated the story for their own uh for their own political gain it really becomes disgusting like the six million number in particular came from the the talmud and the and the the you know it was said that they in order for the the moshiach the messiah to return six million of god's chosen people must vanish mm-hmm. right so they manipulated the story to match the biblical texts as prophecy right and so mm-hmm. that's where a lot of these stories came from and when you start to get into some of these people um some of these early zionist leaders um, I mean, people don't understand what happened in the concentration camps. So like the concentration camps, when the allies destroyed the me- means of production, they were no longer able to get supplies into the camps. The Germans actually turned to the Red Cross and even Jewish organizations to provide aid to the camps. And it was the Jewish agency, particularly the Jewish agency in Switzerland, um, shut down all of these other aid organizations and prevented them from sending aid to the camps. Um, and it even went as far as to say that the, the transport of the Jews to Auschwitz um, was an opportunity because some of them didn't have to walk because yep. they were put on trains. I mean, like the, 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 some of the statements made by these fucking Zionists, they needed Jews to die because only then could they go to the world and say, see, Jews died. We need our own country. That, that will thing. 
that will come across in the article I'm writing about Nahum Goldman in his own words over and over and over again. They said, they insinuated, 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 and then by about 1937, 1938, they were saying it out loud. They were saying what we need to do, and they needed to... Uh, there was this weird um, moment where they were working at, uh, with each other, uh, like the British and the the uh, Zionists were working with each other over Israel. All the other times they were against each other. They were on opposite sides. Britain wasn't hoping to give up um, that land at all to anybody. And they f- kind of like fought against it politically behind the scenes. I want to just, um, from this is from a book, The Seventh Million, uh, The Seventh Million, The Israelis and the Holocaust uh, by uh, Tom Segev. And this uh, describes Nahum Goldman, and I just want to, I, I think I, it's worth stating. When the Israeli and Jewish representatives walked out of the formal negotiations, Nahum Goldman's great hour as a lobbyist and manipulator began. Goldman organized and coordinated a worldwide network of activity aimed at persuading the Germans that it was in their best interest to reach an agreement. As part of this effort, he monitored and even took part in the ceaseless haggling in Bonn. He went to see cabinet ministers, senior officials and members of parliament, making his way through the corridors of power and into the inner chambers. He saw everything and heard everything. He plotted intrigues. He shared secrets with supporters, thwarted opponents, collected promises, made threats, a man of a thousand faces amazing amazing he gets given after after world war ii and the creation of the un of of which um uh eleanor roosevelt was uh, a, a big part of as well um he was given an office within the un to plan uh basically the take the, the creation of the state of israel so the the plans all in there um and one thing that other people don't understand about these extremely important uh Zionist leaders who were behind the creation of Israel, they were behind the creation of American politicians straight away, and that includes Kissinger, because a young Kissinger would have gone round Nahum Goldman's house on occasions and that's because his mum, Paula Kissinger, was Nahum Goldman's housemaid, making sure everything was kosher for when guests come round, that the cooks all remained uh, to, to make sure everything was done in a kosher manner. So there's that young Kissinger got his opportunities. Why? Because he's got connections in the right places and he gets lifted up and he gets boosted and he can do whatever he likes and then it gets rewarded so he does whatever he likes. And that's what we saw the rest of like uh, politics unravel. Uh, lots of these people um, who were involved with these Zionist leaders were some of the most important uh, people around. Um, and of course, uh, it's some of the most crooked as well. The Bronfman family were around Nahum Goldman's house quite a lot, Seagram's family. Um, and yeah, yeah, I just thought I'd add to that, just add a little bit to that. So you you uh do a lot of research into um not only Kennedy but into the creation of Zionism because that's where it's led you. And right, so where was focus, go on. My focus is really like eight what I consider technically eighteen ninety five, starting with like the Dreyfus affair and stretching through um sixty eight with Robert Kennedy. Like that's my focus. I don't give a shit about anything after sixty eight unless it like it has pulls me to my 
focused research, right? Because there's just so much. Like by '68, we already know the deal, right? So like our yeah, country yeah, was taken over. Kennedy was killed by the by the Zionists and the Zionist establishment. See, it's bigger than just Israel because it includes like the Jewish Agency, APAC, back in the day, the American Zionist Council, and all the different Zionist mm-hmm. organizations. So it's, I refer to it as the global Jewish establishment. Because that's what it is. It's bigger than Israel. Israel and some is some of them did. Add, give them. I give. We're not saying that all across the board, every organization just bent over to Zionism straight away. There were lots of Jewish organizations um, over the the ten years post uh, World War Two who really fought against uh, right. Zion, sort of Zionist principles being introduced as just wholly Jewish principles. Uh, absolutely. Um, that resistance is all but gone today. Mm-hmm. Um, like virtually every Jewish organization is a Zionist organization. Yeah, post sixty seven world. I think. I think that's I, you. You've hit a nail on the head uh, with with me because I I went when I was doing my um, Schwab re- research. Everything before sixty eight seems like they're creating the new world order, and everything right. after sixty eight seems like they're enacting the new world order. Hundred percent, and yeah, that's exactly yeah. why I kind of limit myself because the the, the jig is up by sixty eight. By sixty eight, mm-hmm. it's done. The Zionists are in control. Um, after Kennedy, they felt so emboldened. I mean, like if you go on Wikipedia right now and look up Israeli assassinations, there's a list of like 250 of them, right? Yeah. Like, so they just went nuts. They're like, <laughs> they're like, oh my god, we did it. I mean, yeah. America's. Off. I'd say hog wild, but that wouldn't be kosher. Sorry, <laughs> little pun there. But yeah, so so let's take a look what happens when Kennedy gets killed. So the man that they had been grooming since the beginning who never won a fair election in his life, Lyndon Johnson, becomes the president. Lyndon mm-hmm. Johnson is the third Jewish president. He's the first Jewish Zionist. Uh, the previous Jewish presidents were Hamilton and Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, so did, yeah. did, did Johnson know that he was going to become president on the day like... I don't think so. I don't no, think- I, I don't think so either. And that's why I was asking. It's, it's really interesting because I, I think he looks shell-shocked. And I think the whole thing is like he knows. he ev- I, What he looks like the the days afterwards seems to be like everything that he, he had kind of like worried about in the distance suddenly happened in front of him and he knew every single person who was involved in making that happen. You are, you just nailed it, man. I, I, I man, you just, fucking nailed it on the head he knew as soon as it happened he knew what happened yeah but he yeah didn't know until that moment because you don't want to keep the guy who's going to be the next president in that loop because he can always be questioned on it yeah and if he doesn't know shit he can't end of story that simple plausible yeah. deniability is the name of the game it's cringeworthy so- it's cringeworthy i mean he, he gets over he's obviously like not expecting it at all but it's cringeworthy to watch though that time and his look on his face and he you know he's i i think it's on the plane where he gets a wink from one of the guys like yeah yeah <laughs> yes. uh, so, you know um so the thing with Johnson right. is um, they have been grooming him since the beginning. He, the guy genuinely never won an election in his life. Every election was stolen. Um, he was their plant from the beginning. And you got to ask yourself why he was raised Jewish. His mother was a Jew. And just because he never clung to that as an identity. I mean, that's nothing new. you got like Ron DeSantis is as Jew as it gets. 
Mm-hmm. And like, you know, but he'll never cling to that. He was raised by a Jewish woman. He was raised Jewish. And by the time he goes off to college, he forgets about it because he knows he's going to end up in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they never push their people because they already have everyone. So you'll notice they'll never push for a Jewish president because they own every president as it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, there's no, there's really no point. And the halls of power are not as complex as we think they are. They can be manipulated. And by the time that Kennedy uh, gets into power, they already are. Uh, being manipulated i'd be interested to also ask about um that that time the moment kennedy gets in uh, this is interesting to me for future research as well because of course i'm i've gone through the black hand series which looks at all of uh, the kind of background of the people who were involved in the perfumo affair but from different angles and looking at the characters who aren't talked about and things that happened in the past that led up to it um a series of suspicious death deaths within the nightclub scene that was being taken over by intelligence and mobsters in london the most highest like highest uh, echelons of power were all focused in these nightclubs in these three parts of London. They were all there all of the time and it's where all the spy games started going on. And of course, one of them is Mariella Novotny who um, when after the election um, she's flown over to the States by Harry Allen Towers who uh, gets her in um, Kennedy's bedchamber and then uh, he, he she gets caught she gets taken to juvenile court uh and then the cia and fbi smuggle her out of the country um and it's all it, it it's kind of like a warning shot i think to kennedy to say you've got to play ball now you've just won the election uh, do, do what do you know about the 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 women around that time and and what was the difference between i mean you must have done research about kennedy's life itself so some some not a whole lot um and as far as setting the stage for the animosity for kennedy um as he was running joe kennedy was he was a shitbag let's be honest joe kennedy was not a good person he was a bootlegger he worked with the mob all this stuff right he was a wheeler dealer um he had gone to everybody who he thought he could get money from and made promises and they got a lot of money which funded kennedy's campaign he made promises to the zionists the pre is uh, he made he made some promises as far as benefits for israel as far as things he was going to do for Israel, all this stuff. And Kennedy even had to have a meeting and face-to-face agree that he was going to be a promoter of the state of Israel. And then he got money. I forget who this, who the money was funneled through, but that happened. And then what does he do when he gets in office? Immediately, he starts demanding information on Demona. Mm-hmm. Because when uh, you can to- you explain what Demona is to, yeah. to, to me and others? So, um, Demona is a nuclear reactor in the Negev Desert, right? So it's uh, it is basically starting in. This connects to Numek and all that other stuff. So going back to like 1956, Zalman Shapiro, uh, a Jew from Philadelphia, opens up uh, the Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corporation, Numek, in Apollo, Pennsylvania. There, he gets a contract with the U.S. Navy to um, enrich uh, uranium 
right? And so the U.S. Navy has a very specific standard. It's the highest enrichment of uranium in the world at 97.7% enriched. Mm. Uh, and it's the only use in the world. It's considered a signature, right? 97.7% is the U.S. Navy signature for the radiation um, uh, that they use, right? For the uranium that they use. Um, starting in 1956 through about 1965, maybe a little bit after, Zalman Shapiro and uh, his organization start to funnel uh, upwards of 600 pounds of enriched uranium to the Israelis for use at the Demona nuclear reactor. Okay, so at the time, Kennedy was killed. Not only did he know about Ben Gurion and Rudolf Sonborn and the entire smuggling operation that had been going on and continued to go on for 20 years. Um, so let me sidetrack here for a moment. David Ferry, Sergio Arcacha Smith, Gordon Novell, Leighton Martins, his little crew of, uh, of anti-Castro Cubans, which is a whole nother distraction in the Kennedy assassination. Um, they break into the bunker uh, at, uh, at Homa, Louisiana, run by the Schlumberger Corporation, which is really um, run by Jean de Menil. Jean de Menil, part of Permandex, mm -hmm. uh, definitely CIA operation going on all around there. So uh, the, the, the basically, Gordon Novell ends up saying that the CIA left the door open for them. So they go in, they clear out this bunker full of arms and ammunition. All of that stuff is supposed to be getting funneled to the anti-Castro Cubans for the overthrow them um, at the Bay of Pigs, right? However, the problem is the incident at Homa took place eight months after the Bay of Pigs, right? So that money was not going to, uh, the weapons were not going to anti-Castro Cubans. Then when you look into David Ferry and his guys, they actually committed two other burglaries of arms depots run by the CIA uh, leading up to that one at Homa. And so... None of those, then you start to dig into like what happened to those arms and ammunition, you come to realize that none of those arms or ammunition went to the anti-Castro Cubans because they didn't give a shit about Cuba. Cuba is a mm -hmm. front to distract you from the fact that all those arms and the money and all that stuff was sold to Inter-Armco in Virginia run by Samuel Cummings, another CIA agent, uh, and sold to Israel to fight the Palestinians, okay? That's why there was never a Cuban uprising. That's why the fucking Cubans never had their day. So David Ferry, uh, David Ferry and the people who were working with them knew that they weren't uh, supporting the Cubans as well? I don't think they knew anything. They're foot soldiers. Oh, they do of course, they're, they're just transporting it to somewhere and right. then it goes off and then, yeah. Correct. And all that stuff got funneled through Bannister's office in New Orleans, the yeah. same office that Lee Harvey Oswald was alleged to have been at and associated with which I will bet my left pinky, Oswald was not associated with any of these people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> starting in January of 1960, Oswald was being impersonated by multiple people everywhere from Miami to fucking Dallas to it's extraordinary, to Virginia, isn't it? To Quebec. <clears throat> wow. So so from three years before, from three years before, three they years were before. already they were already uh, running an operation to impersonate him all over the place, knowing that he was going to be their eventual patsy. No, I don't think they were planning on using him as the patsy until at least um, early 63. I think that uh -huh. setting him up, uh, what they were doing was they were establishing a a, a, a persona they were establishing a legend they were creating this angry dissident communist persona yeah. that after he got back from the soviet union because that was disappointing in the official story then they could trans they could pivot that and send him to cuba mm -hmm. right so that i believe was what they were doing and hence when they uh, they faked his trip to mexico city they say he went to mexico city to try to get into cuba he never went to mexico city okay he was still in new orleans 
right? On that day, I can prove he was still in New Orleans on the day he was alleged to have crossed into Mexico City. So um, what happened with me was, uh, I want, like I said, this started with needing to know who the shooter on the knoll was. Mm -hmm. That was it. And that is such a naive um, <laughs> thing to want to know, or it's ultimately it is irrelevant. And ultimately it's the most important thing in the world simultaneously. It makes me feel like the old uh, Buddhist teachings. And know, it just, powers. it'll only open up more questions. Uh, yes. And so, um, shit, where was I? So David Ferry, I trace David Ferry's interaction with the CIA going back to 1947. There are witnesses who saw him with Clay Shaw from New Orleans in 1947 at where? In, in, a, in a small airport in Venice, Florida. Does that start to ring a bell? A small airport in Venice, Florida. Where have we heard about that before? Huh. Maybe some of the 9-11 hijackers were trained at this Venice, Florida airport, right? So um, Clay Shaw was the leasee of this airport in 1947. That later, that 60 years later or 50 years later, the 9-11 hijackers used. It was a CIA front airport, right? Um, David Ferry was witnessed with him back then, which means David Ferry's relationship with the CIA goes back to 47, which makes sense. Um, nobody really knows what David Ferry was doing during the war. Uh, there's a big gray area there. Some people say that he was being used by the OSS to do some kind of illicit flying operations, but who the hell really knows? Nobody really knows. It's that sounds a lot like um, that sounds a lot like Horace Divin. Uh, Hard Dibbin, who was Mariella Novotny's husband, um, while she was uh, caught in <laughs> JFK's bedchamber, um, <laughs> uh, and and helped sm with the smuggling back out and meeting her. Um, he he was uh known as a squadron leader or said to have been a squadron leader in uh World War II, but he was a pilot, whatever. Uh, yeah, it's not really sure what he ever did. Later on, he was trying to do psychological operations that completely, completely convinced people of satanic panic, and claimed that he was uh, he was um, he literally in a newspaper writes articles about how he was inducted into a satanic brotherhood in uh, the Isle uh, in the town of Twat in the Orkney Isles <laughs> while serving in a Twat with free teas mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, in the Orkney. Isles um during uh uh night uh, and and of course this is sort of like seeding out but what he was really doing no one really can understand mm -hmm. right. now understanding about um the oss is pretty important as well because i i've done research about what one person who was known as the only british member of the oss um uh, Iva Bryce, who later goes on to help write James Bond um, and also run a fair few operations with Ian Fleming um, or, or or similar operations out in the islands out there. The British were fucking dastardly with their propaganda. Weren't they? Weren't they just? I mean, they oh my God. They were the trying... political warfare executive was um, run by Preston Delmar, I think was his name. Holy shit. You look into that guy. He was... Uh... It sounds like all the BSC stuff that was run out of New York because they were they the British were focused in on making the Americans focus on Soviet issues, and they went through so many like they went round the Mulberry Bush, as we say. Um, they they one of the operations Ivor Bryce planned. He literally planned it all out and and enacted it, and it led to the initial 
policy that um, uh, looked negatively upon Cuba was to have a Nazi general turn up in Spain or Nazi uh, uh, someone or other turn up in Spain with a handcuffed briefcase that gave uh, a fake map showing all of the positions in Cuba where they were going to build Nazi bases. Um, that was one of the ones they did during the war, and it worked as well. It, it led to um, them passing a certain act um, uh, that, that started the negative downhill. But afterwards, they were they were focused on making America think that communism was on Cuba to the point where they made Cuba communist. Really, <laughs> I mean, they, they they people push people to these <laughs> these these extremes. Um, so, so, have you got any nice stories about the OSS and how dastly dastardly? they were yeah so one of the things that really struck me when i did my research on this and i made a documentary on this a couple of years ago um on the psychological warfare aspect of of world war ii and the holocaust um because when you go back to the original documents um from the oss which technically by date were from the oci the office of the coordinator of information which was what it was until in may 42 may ish they became the office of strategic services um, in those early documents, uh, some of my, some of the best stuff ever, like the doctrine regarding rumors, like written by RH Knapp, uh, explains the playbook on how to craft a rumor and what the purpose of a rumor is. And, you know, and I'm like, holy shit. And the thing is that the I know I cannot can just remember your thought there, but I know what a rumor is. It's a mixture between a rhino and a puma. I learned this at school. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, like, uh, so the early OSS documents uh, really outline a lot of this stuff. And one of the more stunning ones that I found is in a OSS document called um, some commentary on the domestic and military situation in Germany. And it's from May of 42, May of 42, the documents from May of 42 were, were pivotal because that was when they were transitioning the name and the, and the role of the OSS. Mm -hmm. Um, but it clearly states, it's an internal document, and it clearly states for them to uh, pay close attention and study to the foreign comments on the use of poison gas. So here we have in May of 42, the seeds of what would grow into the stories of the Nazi gas chambers. In the documents, two and a half years, 30 months before they would announce that there were ever any death camps. Okay, so if you go back and you read the propaganda, they're contradicting themselves like crazy. By 1943, if you add up all the deaths, it's like 100 million Jews got killed. It's hilarious when you go to, back and you to, actually read through to, it. To make people understand the process of how you pump propaganda out like that, um, uh, Alan Dulles was actually located in that period in Switzerland. And it's rumored that his house, I think it was in Bern, had um, an offices had people uh, from both sides uh, going in and out all of the time uh nazis were going in and allies were going in and they'd all be <laughs> passing around information and then they'd be going off and doing their work um you know so there was this this amazing like uh op ground level operation to infiltrate i mean both sides had it as well and what i found very interesting when you were talking about uh, red cross earlier and stuff um and the the, the other sort of charities humanitarian organizations well the when when I did my Schwab research into his father's uh, Nazi past um, and in a model Nazi company and the atomic uh, bomb effort that they were doing there so that they could create
create those heavy water turbines to uh, enrich uranium, they had to make sure that the Ravensburg factory of Escher Weiss wasn't hit uh, during the, the 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 war. So they got the Red Cross, Swiss Red Cross, to say that it was a place where the center of humanitarian efforts would be. And so it was the only place in Germany that was agreed by the Allies that they wouldn't hit this humanitarian hub. In actual fact, it was the, the Allies knew fully well that it wasn't going to be a humanitarian hub, but they allow these things to happen so they can infiltrate these areas and see if they can steal any information. So the bad thing we're meant to prevent is the exact thing that strategically um, in these situations become the focus of attention. It's quite amazing how it works. So after I, um, my Kennedy book, I focus on, it'll, it'll be out probably three months tops. I'm about to finish it. Uh, but I focus, I realized it was just too much for me to put all to one book. So uh, I really decided to just focus on the shooters and the multiple Oswalds. Um, and that's it. And like, so but um, I am extremely passionate about World War II and truth in history in general, because I can tell you right now, the Holocaust has been the biggest lie of all time until COVID-19. And then COVID-19 fucking takes the cake by like a mile. But <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it, what they've done? It's totally amazing. But like up until, and it was funny because it was like, I was like, just doing my research. It is a repeat of history. What you're, what you're uh -huh. marking up, those are a repeat of history. Right. Is seeding fear, a, a psychological presence for the next like two generations to follow yep. them forever. But the, the, the amount of misinformation that people believe about World War II and the Nazis is just so fucking egregious and unbelievable that it, like just for history's sake, the record needs to be set straight. And so I, my next book will most certainly be a massive book that covers basically the origins of Zionism through the end of World War II and like what really went on. Uh, because when you come to understand that there weren't any gas chambers and what the OSS actually did was they knew exactly what was in each of the camps that they could exploit as a deadly weapon when it wasn't. Like um, at Treblinka, it's funny because if you look in the history books now, it'll tell you people got gassed uh, with diesel engines at Treblinka. But there is no mention of gas chambers at Treblinka ever throughout the Nuremberg trials at all. Um, at Treblinka, it was accused that they steamed people to death. And so why would they make that accusation? Because the, at Treblinka, they didn't have uh, Zyklon B delousing facilities. They had steam delousing facilities and the allies knew that. So the story all throughout, all throughout Nuremberg is that at Treblinka, they steamed people to death, right? And when they're talking about this at Nuremberg, they're not talking about Jews at all. They're talking about people. The Jewish twist to the story didn't come until Raoul Hilberg in the 1960s. So like you have this incredible era of history from 1945 till about 1965. Well, you're not going to find a damn history book that talks about the suffering of Jews, gas chambers, none of that stuff. It's a void in history. Mm -hmm. And then Raoul Hilberg wrote his book where he... he, he the, the claims that he makes and the claims that people like um, Jean-Claude Prissac, who wrote the book Technique and Operations of the Gas Chamber, like they just made shit up out of thin air. Like literally, there's okay. three or four Let authors who, who actually just all they do is reference each other in this big circle jerk of fake history. From from that era of like nineteen forty five through the sixties, mm -hmm. I, I I can completely I can completely believe that because I've seen how history works and I've seen how it, um our, our understanding of it is is manipulated. I I remember being to this certain um 
like when I started researching the, the, the sort of that era, the, when I started researching gas chambers, things like that, um, what the most legitimate, most the one with the best credentials was a story about uh, um, a van that when at the start they were driving around a van with the exhaust hooked up into some sort of unit and it was said to be used for gassing um uh people or trying to attempt to do that right but the 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 actual um process had caused people to be so violently sick the people who were involved in that process in this sort of stuff uh violently sick and the local area to to not be happy with them at all doing this uh, and the screams that used to come out of the 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 thing now now is that uh, I, and I'm not asking you to talk about specific. Right. Is that something well, I know, that I know is the specifics like, of the gas van? Uh, right. So, so, so it, is that a true? Is were they were they looking? Is that what spawned the use of the rumor on the other side as a propaganda okay. effort, or is it is it that they were actually doing something like that, or is it that nothing like that happened at all? Right. Nothing like that happened at all, and I'll explain it in excruciating detail. So. They were putting out all these numbers, like million Jews killed in Czechoslovakia and like a million and a half Jews killed in Poland. And like all these numbers were just so fucking massive. And they're saying that they're getting killed in the camps, but these camps couldn't hold a, a, per, you know, a fraction of a percent of the numbers that they said that they were killing in the camps, right? They're just making these numbers up out of nowhere, right? But a camp could hold 50,000 people and they're saying a million people got killed there. It didn't make any sense. So they crafted the story of the mobile gas chambers and not only the mobile gas chambers, the other key aspect of the story is the mobile bone grinders. And you need the, the mobile bone grinders to go hand in hand mm. with the gas vans because then they could justify the numbers. They just rode through a hundred miles and gassed everybody and ground their bones into dust. So there's no evidence. Mm -hmm. Like here's the deal. anytime someone ever says the Nazis destroyed the evidence, what they're saying is they don't have any fucking evidence. Mm -hmm. It's the yep. same thing. I so have a, I have a problem. I have a problem with everything. And this is why I set up newspaste in the first place. And this is what I want to go on with. I have a problem with anything where people say there's um, this thing happened, but you're not allowed to talk about it. Mm -hmm. That anything, anything at all where someone says uh, or acts in a way that means that I have to be quiet makes me instantly think that I'm being deceived because it's one of the key markers to, to deceit is is yep. uh, is being told you're not allowed to speak about something. It's also abusive. And it's something that I've from lots of study worked out uh, the behavioral insight teams the, and psychological operations as they yeah. used to be called uh cd jackson and robert yeah. mcclure and uh rh knapp and all those guys from the early days of world war ii yeah for, for, and, and the first jackson. coups the first coups in in uh egypt and iran that the cia yes. did and said uh, you know it, these guys are nefarious guys and they've got reasons why they they hide everything but i could you know there's certain i there's going to be a load of people who listen to this and you know the reaction is well, one, one thing that needs to be clarified this this needs to be clarified so to put everything in perspective there is zero argument from anyone at any of the holocaust museums anywhere 
the buildings they present to you as gas chambers are fakes. They are fakes. They were built in 1947 after a coordinated effort between the Russian propaganda unit and the budding CIA. They made the decision. In 1947, the building that was found and is presented as a gas chamber at Auschwitz I was originally built as a Morgan crematory. And we know this because it had individual rooms, concrete rooms, and it was built into the side of a hill to keep it cool because you need bodies to stay cold so they don't stink. And why do you have to have a morgue and a, and a crematory on a camp like this? Because there's a war going on and people are dying, right? So mm -hmm. it's not because they were gassing people and they needed to burn the bodies. Every single camp, and there were like 75,000 camps across Europe, every single one of them had a crematory uh, and they had they had to dispose of the bodies, right? So all how buildings, many how many did you say were how many uh, camps did you say were around Europe? Like upwards of like seventy five thousand. Seventy five thousand. Well, here that you'll have like lot, you'll have like Auschwitz, which will be like one camp, which really Auschwitz was like six camps, and then mm -hmm. surrounding Auschwitz, you had like another dozen tiny. Yeah, yeah, okay. So like that includes all of those. So uh, that's kind of the structure. So like Auschwitz might be 25 camps. You know what I mean? So it's kind of. So how like, many people died then? Nobody knows. But here's I can tell you one thing. When you look at the numbers that everyone uses for reference, they use like census data going back to like 1930 that showed that uh, 9.6 million Jews were living in Europe at the time. And so. Uh, at the end of the war, there were 3.6 million Jews. So they say, obviously, he killed 6 million Jews. That's where they come up with this bullshit number. However, it completely ignores the fact that by 1942, uh, 2 million Jews fled from Europe to the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, Another yeah. million fled between North and South America. 300,000 yeah, went to Australia, right? When you deduct all the numbers, it comes down to somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 million potential deaths, which isn't really a gross exaggeration. I'd say the actual number of Jews killed as part, and this is very specific, killed as part of the concentration camp system in Europe, right? The Holocaust has three very specific aspects to it. Number one, a very clear and distinct plan by the German government to eliminate all the Jews. Like it was a specific state-sponsored program. That's one alleged uh, aspect of it. The other one is that there were 6 million Jews who got killed. And the third aspect is that they killed them in gas chambers. Those three aspects comprise the Holocaust story and all three are blatantly false. So um, what is the Holocaust if there were no gas chambers? Well, what you have is a brutal slave labor system that mm -hmm. Jews made up somewhere between 30 and 45% of the camps. They were not even the majority in any, well, in some camps they were because of location, but overall they made up less than half of the camps. Um, the majority of the people in the camps were foreign political prisoners. Uh, the, the, the Germans killed over a million uh, gypsies, about a million, 1.25 million gypsies. That's more than the Jews they killed. Okay. So like it's a hijacking of history. It's a rewriting of history and why, uh, it really didn't even have anything to do with getting the state of Israel. Um, those stories were rewritten later, right? Uh, you know, we need to get Israel so Jews will be safe. No, they've been trying to get a state of Israel for, you know, since 1897 at that first Zionist Congress, which was the entire point of the Zionist Congress, was to get a state. But see, they if you read some of these quotes from these early Zionists, and I know we're bouncing around here, but it's all connected. So the quotes of these early Zionists, they will go to show there was far more of an agenda going on than getting a state and they didn't give a damn about Jews. And you know that from reading the diaries of Herzl, how they were willing to literally kill Jews to get their own Zionist state. You know, mm -hmm. so um, the entire state of Israel is just really a political 
It's, it's a bunch of white people who are origined in the Ukraine who hijacked land from a bunch of brown people for political and resource uh, needs. That's basically it. You know, it's fucking par for the course, it seems, when you come to understand who's really doing it. So well, but, um, some day- I, go off on, I, I go off on tangents sometimes, but all this stuff is like, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. It's all the same story. It's all yeah. the same interconnectivity and all the same literal people between this era of like 1930s and like 1960s, literally the same people. Yeah. So that, I'll talk about the Israelis going back to the twenties and thirties because it's the same people, even though there wasn't technically a state of Israel, you know? Yeah. Most definitely. I understand that from doing my own research and discovering that um, they were, they, they were people like Nahum Goldman were traveling around uh, all of Eastern Europe um, before the war. And they were raising fear and raising fear and raising fear. And by the time, the war broke out. I, I, I see the. I, I still see them as death camps. But I, yeah, I, I don't know how they, they, they were killed. I don't see them as. Uh, I, I don't see the number being anywhere near six million. Um, and I, what I see is horrific work camps, um, that would have been horrible to be in and would have been torturous, uh, experience. Mm-hmm. And lots of people would have died. And if you got sick in those camps, they would have probably given you an injection to say good night as well you know well, i actually I, if you research the me- the medical aspect of like particularly auschwitz like there were like three thousand babies delivered there right yeah, so yeah. you know people would people would be taken off of work and put into the uh, they were treated like i mean here's the thing you gotta you have to think this is not a bunch of animals as we've been taught to believe the nazis were they were an extremely strict um military styled outfit right so like mm-hmm. there were rules and standard operating procedures and general orders and you there was discipline like it wasn't uh, like uh, a lawless land like if you stepped out of line you were disciplined they fucking executed their own people yeah. um ilsa coke is like the best example of that ilsa coke the the grandmother or the aunt or whatever of the coke brothers right so mm-hmm. um she's called the bitch of buchenwald and the story was that she had um inmates killed and had their skin cut off to make lampshades out of that's like still the story that's still yeah. the fucking story the lampshade story has been debunked since the 90s okay yeah. uh, all stories still- get debunked eventually i think <laughs> eventually no one's around to, to, to tell them this this is a wonderfully dangerous conversation just a type that i like um because there'll be a load of people who get really emotive and there'll be a load of people who already completely utterly despise anything that me and you do anyway um who will be like i've been taught something and i believe it with a passion uh regardless of the evidence for me i think there was uh, a load of people killed in camps but i agree that the rest of it makes no sense sense and the big gap and the not being able to ask questions and all of that leads me to believe that it's something that needs to be debunked um uh, eventually uh, or at least the truth needs to be told for at least the people who were involved in it because it's disrespectful to add in a load of deaths onto things to make it seem worse it's bad enough i mean world war Two was an awful affair a really awful affair that saw lots of people needlessly die world war one is even all the numbers are, i think all the numbers are exaggerated though i mean i've seen some people say like 60 million were killed in world war Two, and i've seen like other historians say well we have evidence for about 25 to 30 but like those other claims are we don't have it uh, by the sounds of it i would say that the worst front was definitely russia and it definitely the russians got the biggest uh, number k 
killed of their own troops who just like uh i i mean they just the, the nazis just tried to destroy it and it was very like it was uh lots of reasons why historic ones it's a very strange thing we're talking about here because we're talking we, we start off on the um uh, death of Kennedy and the assassination of of, of uh, JFK. It's amazing that, that well, it's, it's an intricately linked story because yeah, the Zionists yeah. play an in, in, intimate role in in one the shaping of the events of World War Two, right? Because ultimately, who was Hitler fighting? Hey, I know America was part of the Allies, right? And we're the, we're the good guys, but ultimately, Hitler was fighting a combination of Zionist and communist forces, the communists from the Russians and the Zionists from the West, right? Mm -hmm. And so like what happened in World War II and the relationships in World War II between the governments completely connects to Kennedy. And then it completely connects to what's going on today, particularly with things like this transgender movement that's being pushed, intentionally pushed um, as, a, as, a, as a method of undermining our culture through sexual deviancy. And we know this because this is what created Hitler in the first place. Yeah. Go yeah. back to post-World War I Germany and look at how the communists and things like the Frankfurt Institute, funded by Zionists, by the way, were intentionally trying to destroy the fabric of Germany. Mm -hmm. And that is what created the, the overt anti-Semitism that came from the National Socialists. When they were done with Jews infiltrating and, 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 and over trying to break up their, 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 their society from within. And that is exactly what we're seeing today. Go and trace who's pushing the transgender movement and all this bullshit that we're seeing. Hell, even things like common core math were meant to undermine traditional uh, mathematics, right? So um, this is all being pushed by Zionist organizations like the Aspen Institute and fuck, you name it. Then they're all the ones behind it because they're doing the same thing to America that they did to Germany in 1918 through 1933. But guess what happened in 1933? Adolf Hitler came and he put a stop to all of that. And then they then they had to create the myth of, of Hitler, of the the madman Hitler, the 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 meth addict. Well, that was actually true, <laughs> you know, but all the horrible things that they say about the Nazis, they needed to to so you could never understand what Hitler was mad about in the first place because mm -hmm. they're doing it again to us today. Well, they, they, uh, one of the things that um, Hitler did was he uh, stopped the money and the uh, money that they deemed as illegal from leaving the German, um, leaving Germany domestically. And Alan Dulles and others were actually uh, pre um, World War II. Um, were in court in Germany trying to get money back that had been confiscated from them. And when that failed, of course, well, that's not going to be good. There's a couple of things from what you said. Well, one thing I want to comment real quick and is hilarious that like, um, like 20 years ago, Ellie Wessel, uh, the Holocaust survivor who survives from six gas chambers, <laughs> fucking um, that guy, he said uh, that there were about 100,000 Holocaust survivors left. Um, today, there's over 400,000. So where did these extra 300,000 come from in the last 20 fucking years? Well, they've been breeding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you know, 70 year old people can still have children, you know, Hilarious. that's the way that's the world we live in nowadays. It's I wouldn't believe if you, you start saying that I'm a 70 year old and I have my baby in my belly. I identify as a pregnant person. Um, <laughs> But I want to know they, what their excuse is going to be 20 years from now when they're technically like 110 years old. They, there's a couple of they, <laughs> that they're robotic Kissingers. <laughs> I, I won't be, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they are <laughs> by that time. Um, there's a couple of things about what you just uh, were saying there. The 
reason if you were to be and I, I think this is the best way i'm thinking it in my head if you were to be a guy who closed his eyes for um 10 years in 1929 in anywhere in europe and you close your eyes you could be assured if you had the knowledge that some big technology was coming and they were understanding it and they'd already started to realize that this thing was going to be really big and it could cause massive explosions and etc um that if you closed your eyes in 1929 and opened them up again in 1939 uh there would be a war no matter who was fighting against who where it was going on there would be a war and it would be a war uh to uh try and get on top of a technology that was definitely on its way and they were already starting to work on and they realized how big it was and they had been given i i mean i can't remember uh when uh like einstein was working on such things but it's well before that it's a good 20 years before and they knew where it was heading so i feel that the the entering into the atomic age they knew what was going on at the time and it did not matter the reasons there was always going to be an excuse for war uh between the major powers who had to try and get to this technology first so they could be in control for the next 50 60 70 years which is what we've seen with america really well i can see that as being a thought in their head yeah yeah i i, I, I kind I, of i kind of trace directly i wouldn't say they're directly the, planning on it i i'm saying that that like it does not matter what they the individual parts did right. eventually they got close enough to the technology that they were pushed into doing that so they started to get erratic as it got closer to that and then they were you're going to be pushed towards it because it's such a big technological shift well there was definitely that race to get the bomb for sure but i can't help but looking at the totality of circumstances over this massive like generational period it just seems to me that german world war one and world war two the real reason for them was that the Zionists needed Germany to fall as the conquering of the Ottoman Empire in order to pave the way for the rise of the state of Israel. Like biblical prophecy bullshit. Like, I just can't help seeing, like, I feel like I saw it and I can't unsee it. You yeah. know? I find it very interesting that um, it was like what happened with the the funding of things like the gmf and with the government base uh, the germans basically saying right well we've got to use the americans as a proxy uh eventually cia ngos all sorts of things like that as a proxy to be able to defend our backs because we're no longer allowed to defend our own borders that they were uh neutered twice to an extent um with each of the world wars and they were taught a lesson uh that they would never ever ever forget and i mean they, it must be bad going around being the bad guy or feel bad going around being the bad guy all the time in history's books but uh it's a lot more complicated than that the other thing i was going to say about the conversation we were having before was about the um cultural i think you know a peak of culture ends in a culture eating itself with self-hate a mixture of self-hate and self-reverence so uh there had been such a rich culture for hundreds of years in germany that it reached this cultural orgy stage bread and circus moments for for this this peaking culture and i think then a lot of people psychologically hate the fact that this culture is no longer the rich beautiful culture of the past and want to destroy it 
and a load of the other people become hedonistic and are unable to see the world for around him and that causes like some sort of cultural crash that was bound to happen within German society and Russian society in the same way around that time. Because if you look at the rich history uh, of Russia and Germany during those times, it was very culturally based where the Americans, I, I say this a few times and I know a couple of Americans will think, you know, take some sort of like, this is an insult in some way, but I don't mean it like that, but they were viewed by the rest of the world as being a behemoth with right. emotionless, soulless, without right. culture, assimilating everybody else's culture as their own. Like the board. Uh, yeah, to, to, ki killing off, killing off as many Native Americans as possible, and then worshiping their Native American uh, roots. You know, it's 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 they can't help doing it. And and... So, and I don't say I disagree with you on any of what you just said, but that's talking in large, uh, large scale societal yeah. ideological terms. But I have a feeling if you went back and had the knowledge to specifically go through every civilizational collapse. And the individual micro, the individual players who were involved in the decision making, I have a feeling that there might be a particular type of person who was behind all the decisions that led to these societies crumbling, just like we're having in America today. Yeah. So you might be right on the macro, but on the micro, I think it's always the same story. Again, but that's that's a macro thing as well, because I think it comes back to, to, to the idea that... Um, we are really intriguing. Humans are really intriguing. And I don't know what to do with this data that I'm going to say now, but each of our uh, different cultures and races uh, have like these genetic um, activities within our genetic code that make the people who are manifest within that culture are created by uh, two folk to suddenly act a certain way. That is clear in in loads of different ways we're not allowed to talk about it it's another thing we're not allowed to talk about because when we do talk about it often people uh only can talk about it through the prism that the other side talk about it which is to do something about it and i don't believe you should necessarily do something about it so I if i think you should recognize it for what it is so and i, I think that's the proper role of a historian yeah. is not necessarily to come up with a plan to do something but just say hey this is what is this is the deal now yeah. you go do something with it, right? No, that's that, I I do think that the the genetic uh, route is a really interesting one um, in general, especially relating to Germany. I, I've when, when I've explained this in to, to in one um, interview I did before, I sure, but um, in the Uber Schwabia, where Schwab is from, uh, Uber Schwabia is just just north of uh, the Swiss border. Uh, and it's a very interesting region. It's actually near the Swiss border, makes it near the Italian border, makes it near the Austrian border, makes it near the, you know, Bavaria, makes it near North Germany, makes it even en route to France. If you're French and you want to get through any of those areas, you've got to get permission from the people of Uberschwabia. And over years and years of people who succeeded in the genetics that were allowed to prosper the most in that region was one of trade of allowing to uh, partake in a type of trade that said we're willing for you to do terrible things or we're willing to do terrible things at the right cost to keep the peace.
And once you then put your that frame of mind over every trading situation, you're then willing to make big deals that have massive um, consequences uh, with people like the Club of Rome, such as right. Schwab himself do, you know, uh, give away a massive ethical um, uh, or moral uh your conscience for some horrible, horrible. See, I would, I would argue that they're not giving away their conscience, and I would argue that the, the aspect of their governance and their governance models that we have not even touched upon, is that there is a heavily entrenched occult aspect to it that has mm -hmm. been ever present, literally for a hundred years, provably, that is an, an integral part of their decision making and alleviates them of any guilt or any of that stuff. And so um, the, there is, um, I don't know if you've gotten to in my, I don't know if, which, which of my stuff you've watched, but in, the, in my seven hour video, about two hours in, I have about a half an hour on the occultism that was going on in Dealey Plaza. Mm -hmm. It is the identical occultism that has persisted through to this day. One of the uh, most controlled spaces. I think Dealey Plaza must have been the most oh, yeah. controlled space. Really cleverly controlled. Really, uh, uh, it just seems so suspicious. His lines of cues of all of these crowds, and then it just goes peace all of a sudden. You're out in the open. There's dotted pe people dotted around, running with no security there next to the roads. Makes no sense whatsoever. It was an must extremely controlled. It was an it was a controlled crime scene with yeah. um, people blocking off before the crime had been committed. It was a controlled yeah. crime scene, uh, and they had to because the majority of the people standing between Houston Street and the grassy area and the and the slope, not so much on the grassy knoll, but in the street leading up to it. Um, I have located in Dealey Plaza um, numerous rabbis wearing ceremonial robes and outfits that are part of the celebration for the holiday of Purim. Now, uh, this is extremely significant. Um, Purim is, is a holiday that celebrates, like most of their holidays, um, celebrates two things. One, the slaughter of their enemies, and two, the salvation of the Jewish people. This is a theme you will find in all of these Jewish holidays. Purim in particular is the story of Haman, who was an Achaemenid Persian Empire official. And uh, Mordecai was a Jew, um, and Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. And so Haman got with the king, and they put out a, a, a decree to kill all the Jews in the empire because um, of the situation, right? And so uh, ultimately, you have Esther, who's the star of the story. Uh, her and Mordecai they're Jews, right? In the, in, in the land of, uh, technically, this is at the Shushan Temple, which in reality was most likely Northern Ethiopia, which makes these bunch of black people. Um, so uh, uh, basically, uh, Esther and Mordecai, uh, they get all the Jewish people in the land to fast. Uh, and ultimately, uh, uh, God intervenes. It's considered a miraculous saving of the Jewish people. Mordecai is, uh, I'm sorry, Haman gets hanged. Mordecai gets put into Haman's place in the government, and it's happily ever after, right? So that is the story of Purim. 
And now in, when you study the Talmud and like ritual sacrifice, um, now the people, people will deny that such thing as Jewish ritual sacrifice. It's bullshit. Uh, there is Jewish ritual sacrifice. Um, a bunch of uh, goats were saved as they were on their way to the Temple Mount in 2017, where a bunch of uh, uh, Jews were going to slaughter them, right? So sacrifice is most certainly uh, a part of the culture. Um, but after the destruction of the Temple in 70 AD, according to the religiosity right of the of their of the sacrifice you're not allowed to commit a sacrifice because there's nowhere to do it you're not uh you were only allowed to do it at the temple mount and that's it so after mm -hmm. 78 d technically jews are not allowed to commit sacrifice however there are two exceptions and one of those exceptions is that you can commit a sacrifice at a purim festival mm -hmm. not at the temple mount so despite the fact that purim is in march and that the assassination was in november by holding a symbolic Purim festival, um, you maintain the, 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 legal, the legalistic nature of the sacrifice, right? So uh, clearly in Dealey Plaza on Houston Street in a single frame from the Robert Hughes film, I found three rabbis wearing full Purim ceremonial robes up on the hill, up on the grassy knoll in front of the pergola. There were a bunch of teenagers there who were wearing what looked like band uniforms and no one's ever commented on this in the history of Kennedy research. Why are there a bunch of kids wearing band uniforms? Well, they weren't band uniforms. They were children's Purim ceremonial outfits. Wow. That's okay. clear that's... as day. And they're, and they're standing clear as day on uh, up, up by the pergola. So this, the entire audience there, when you look at what they're wearing, uh, they're all wearing some sort of ceremonial robe and hat. There's a teal color that's important to the Purim, uh, celebration there's a whole bunch of people wearing these teal shirts especially one standing on the stairs at the book depository um and then when you get back into the photographs of immediately after the assassination there is a large group of hasidic jews standing in the railroad yards with guys wearing uniforms that almost look like police uniforms with the flat hat like an nypd type hat uh, i don't know if you'll re remember this but lee bowers the tower man he said that from his position, he saw men in uniforms. Yeah. At no time did he ever identify them as cops because they weren't. They were wearing some kind of, I believe, what, what, what organization in America in 1963 connected to Israel wears a military uniform like that? There's only one, the IDF. Only one. And I have pictures of these guys behind the grassy knoll after the assassination. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go through the photographs and you realize it was a who's who of everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm talking Ted Shackley, George Joannidis, um, Otto Skorzeny was in Dealey Plaza. And Otto Skorzeny, I don't know if you're familiar, he was Hitler's bodyguard. Um, <laughs> he, did. Otto, uh, he was considered the elite of all German soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, he was, um, uh, after the war, he was recruited by the Mossad to go and shoot his old Nazi buddies. And he did. Um, it is rumored oh, wow. that he murdered, it's rumored he murdered Tesla, uh, but no one really knows. Um, but no, Otto Skorzeny was most certainly an operative. Uh, he was actually one of two men who were, had the designation QJ Win. Um, so for many years, people have tried to identify QJ Win. I think it's like one of the easiest things to identify if you understand the era and the people and the and like ZR Rifle was the execution program, the executive action program. When you go through the ZR Rifle files, it becomes obvious that there were two. Um, because they talk about Madrid and they talk about the Corsicans, right? Which is in France. Mm -hmm. So you obviously have two different people they're talking about. Then thank God for Hank Alborelli, whose book Coup in Dallas confirmed there were two offices of QJ Wynn. Um, and he identifies Scorzani as one of them. And I identified the other office of QJ Wynn as none other than Jean-Pierre Lafitte, uh, international man of mystery who most people have never heard of. 
Um, but uh, QJ Win, when you go through the ZR rifle files and you come to understand the relationships between the CIA and the executive action program and the mafia, um, you come to understand that um, uh, the guy, the operative they were using for the recruitment of the Grassinol shooter was most certainly QJ Win. That's implied in some of the documents. And when you come to realize it was Jean-Pierre Lafitte, um, that just adds to the magnanimous nature of it, which nobody can write a book on Jean-Pierre Lafitte because there's not enough information on him out there to do so. Um, <laughs> That's how but, I feel about Corbley, really. Uh, uh, but Hank Albarelli tried in Coup in Dallas to write some write a book written on the scraps from Lafitte's alleged day book. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, so that I forget what we were talking about, but that entire mechanism of like uh, we're talking the, about dealer plaza and the, the the controlled nature of it, um, right. the 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 different um, uh, people you've identified as well, putting as together the, the identities of the shooters on the grassy knoll was fucking hard, and it took me years. But the information mm -hmm. is there. But here's the thing: I was a cop for a long time, um, and like I said with my example earlier, you know, um, a lot of times it's a lot simpler than people think, right? So like back to my example with the red car in the driveway that the boyfriend murdered, you know, the boyfriend murders the girlfriend in the house and the neighbor says the red car, right? She provided mm -hmm. a detail, number one, that she didn't know was significant, right? That's how you can verify the statements of witnesses. When they provide information they don't know is significant, but yet yeah, they provide it anyway. That's number one, right? And number two, in the, when it comes to Kennedy researchers, even though it'll be that simple, slam dunk, the red car belonged to the boyfriend, the girlfriend was murdered, it's easy, two plus two equals four. In the world of Kennedy research, they'll be like, well, what shade of red was it? Well, what color was the license plate? You can't prove that it was his, even though it was the same car. You know, like that's the bush bullshit that you'll get from, from yeah, other yeah, researchers. Yeah. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. And I credit my ability to like kind of boil shit down to simplicity because I worked mm -hmm. thousands of cases as an actual cop. And I saw how simple things were. And yeah. so when I see multiple descriptions of a man on the sixth floor of the book depository who looks like a Hispanic with dark complexion, and he's got numerous bumps on his face or moles on his face. Um, and uh, in 50 years, no one's identified this fucking guy. But when you go through the known list of characters in the assassination and who was doing what where, do you have a husky Latino guy with dark complexion who had bumps on his face from moles? Yeah, you do. You got one. His name's Lawrence Howard. And so then when you study Lawrence Howard, you connect him to two other guys, uh, a guy named Lauren Hall, who was another mercenary, uh, and then another guy named William Seymour. And oh my God, William Seymour looks just like Lee Harvey Oswald. And mm -hmm. so then you start to study William Seymour and you start to realize that William Seymour was one of the two men who was impersonating Oswald all the fuck over the place, everywhere from Miami in 1961 to Bolton Ford, January 1960, that first incident at Bolton Ford, to Miami in 61, um, to the incidents leading up to the assassination, which put the rifle in Oswald's hand, right? The shooting at uh, uh, General Walker's house, which is what they said linked the rifle to Lee Harvey Oswald and Oswald to the shooting. Well, the bullet they pulled out of the freaking wall at Walker's was uh, from a Mauser 7.65. It was not from a Carcano, right? So, but when you look at the testimony of the neighbor, whose name was Kirk Coleman, who was a 14 year old boy, who heard the shots at Walker's house, came out, looked over the fence. He saw two men get into two different vehicles and drive away. One of them was a tall guy, about six foot with a dark complexion. Hello, are we starting to see the same people over and over again, right? We have witnesses at the Carousel Club who saw Oswald at the Carousel Club with a dark complected Mexican who had numerous bumps on his face. Same guy popping up all over the place for three years leading up to the assassination and not one fucking Kennedy researcher in the world has had the balls to put his finger on who this is. Yeah. It was Lawrence Howard and William Seymour, his partner, was involved heavily in the setup of Oswald, 
like at the shooting range, Oswald allegedly went and shot at people's targets. Well, when you go and you read through the statements of the people who were there, Oswald was never there. It was clearly William Seymour with a large guy with a dark complexion, okay, who had really big feet. Obviously, the relationship is between William Seymour and Lawrence Howard. So, you know, when you see Oswald with a guy with dark complexion and bumps on his face, looks like a Mexican, which we have, I have literally a dozen different incidents involving. You can say with absolute certainty that was William Seymour and he was with Lawrence Howard. And that's how I know this because of the relationship between these two guys and the fact that it matches the description everywhere over a three-year period, right? So it's, to me, this is my ultimate frustration with Kennedy that some other fucking idiot should have figured this shit out years ago. Really? Yeah, like, man. I, 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 I feel about this about loads of stuff. So I, I did the Schwab pieces I did. I felt like this about a load of the stuff that I looked at in the black hand series. I just like, I can't understand why no one else, when I was researching young, I felt like no one else. And I got, a, I, I mean, there, there is a split in character and the difference between research. It's not just about style. It needs to be that you have to be able to uh, realize that three points of, uh, of information that all pointed the same thing means something and can go on through that and see where that leads you and if it leads you to more information about the same thing that's very suspicious and you can make and if it leads to the entire story unraveling in front of you then you've taken that road for a reason and that road needs to be taken because that's where the evidence leads now if i you don't have a burning desire to have the answer you're never going to get anywhere in fucking research. Like, yeah, but I a lot of people are scared. Deep down, you're scared to have the answer because the answer could stop them doing everything they're doing, and they feel that. I, 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 I just, I just think there's a sense of what you're describing about the people who were Kennedy researchers haven't come to terms with what they're doing yet, and they're scared to. It, it's like a game that they're going to lose if they if they admit that that's true. The person who's already knows it and already telling it has made the discovery or has already knows this and that means you have to give up part of your ego and you've got to give up part of something else and people just crumble under those simple exchanges of ego you know i i understand sometimes somebody tells me something that i've thought for a long time and then they tell me to give me information that shows it's true and my a little bit my ego is hurt of course it is but then i get over it very quickly some people that is uh, like if your ego isn't intact then basically you'll have a whole uh, crisis and yeah. and that's what i think most of it is 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 people who just can't accept from somebody else what they've discovered but if they were doing it right they'd look at it and say well what does that mean well what does that mean right. and that's the proper researcher is the person who sees all the information sees it and says okay that makes sense now what does that mean and go on right and when i look at research that's just like totally off the wall i, I look at it from the perspective of like okay is this organic did this idea come from nowhere or did it all of a sudden pop up on three jfk forums simultaneously yeah. uh, is it being planted um and also when you when, when someone is pretty dead set on a theory it has to be able to be integrated with other facts <laughs> right so um when like i have 100% confidence that I have identified all the shooters, the handlers, the money flow, like the whole thing. Um, now, I have an associate who spent way more years on this than me, but he focused more on the relationships between the Israelis leading to guys like Clay Shaw and stuff that I still need to discover. Right? There's still a ton of stuff that I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, but in as far as like, I started with the micro details, the shooters, you know, who the, who the right witnesses were, all that stuff. But so now when somebody prevents, presents a theory to me, 
I know whether or not it integrates with mine, right? It can be something I didn't discover yet, but I can look at it and be like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. And that connects yeah. over here, right? So it has to, it's like, it's literally like a jigsaw puzzle that the pieces actually have to fit together. And that's another thing with research is like, you can have 60% of the pieces and you know what needs to go where, right? So you can, you can just, you just understand the totality of the incident or circum or whatever historical event you're studying and you can see it all at once and you can see which patches are, are, are you don't have, right? And you understand the relationship between what you don't know and what you do know, right? So it's, yeah, um, honestly, just wanting to know who the shooter on the grassy knoll was, like changed my entire fucking life and made <laughs> me a different person uh, from who I was when I started five years ago. It, on Kennedy in particular, you know? definitely understand that. Uh, my, in that sense, um, understanding who Laura Koonsberg, the political editor of the BBC, was started my journey, and discovering that her grandfather had part created the NHS, and her father had been the only factory in Peru, I think it was, that uh, that that didn't have to uh, abide by a certain law that gave his workers rights, and uh, and going along this path led me to the same sort of changed my life and it's silly it's silly isn't it the, the first information listen you've given me a, a good amount uh to think <clears> about <throat> and there's a load of other stuff i'd love to speak to you about this um uh, i have a habit and, of getting on a show to talk about kennedy and then we don't end up talking about kennedy so well we did um, a lot at all i mean i did but i have, have like infinite about, more I have yeah I, I i have the specifics on what happened in the book depository how the shooters got away where they went um what i like the idea of focusing so. up uh of focusing up on some of these but there's also like um uh, uh, uh what does this mean and where we uh, where are we now moment that i'd like to kind of discuss with you um maybe maybe i mean obviously you're on the same uh independent scene uh you, there's some brilliant people on it hopefully we'll cross over sometime and we can have a conversation about this on another platform with a couple other people um yep. because uh, the more input the better again that's what research is about isn't it um i really thank you for your time some of that uh really really just has me thinking about i, I it, when you're talking about integrating someone else's views a lot of what you've said today uh allows me to say okay that makes that makes sense and that makes sense and that makes sense and it's I like a lot of different stuff i still like to remain on the outskirts and i like that someone else has already covered a hell of a lot of this ground already that makes it really easier for when i come in uh at, at sort of like a tangent and there is a tangent to be had here because i got a couple of different sort of areas of focus that lead me towards kennedy and i've been walking there for a long time and it'll lead me to a different uh, part of the story um and be able to 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 uh, explain something myself so i think we're going to have a beautiful relationship yeah. and there's uh, a bunch of things that like i there's a bunch of things that i know that i don't know that i need to know that i need mm -hmm. help with like i know Clay Shaw was in Dallas with Erwin Heyman, who was the representative of the Jewish agency in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. I can't prove that, but I know it happened. So I know the proof is out there. You know, there's a lot of things like that. Oh, that when I, I know the proof is on. out there, I just, you know, it's when you get a first, uh, a first for it. Trying to oh, prove well, the biggest one, the biggest on. one for me is um, Hank Greenspun, who ran the Sun <laughs> newspaper. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with Greenspun. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 go on. Watergate. Watergate was completely about Kennedy. 
had nothing to do with bugging the DMC, the Democratic National Headquarters. Uh, Hank Greenspun, who was one of the plotters in it, in the fun- that's money where I know the name from. I'm doing uh, research on that right now, and uh, I, when when we finish recording here, I, I'll ask you a few questions about sure. this. Um, he sent a letter um, that is known as the, the Hank Greenspun letter that basically is the cause of Watergate and why they broke in there and why they were planning on breaking into his office. Mm-hmm. Cause allegedly he had information in a safe that had the whole plot. And so that I know the Greenspun letter I know is out there. I know people who have read it in the past and there's no copies available for me to find. So that I'm looking for is a bunch of things. We'll, we'll, yeah, get, yeah. we'll get together on this stuff. Yeah. I, I, I think we, we, yeah, probably coordinate. Well, like I say, I, I mean, wh- where is best to find you? Cause you've obviously got your own uh, website, but you've also got a book coming out. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. Sure. Um, my book, I have, uh, like I said, I have three chapters to go. Um, it will be done probably what is it are we in may yet it'll probably be done in uh four to six weeks it'll probably be out for sale in july but here's the thing you can pre-order my book now and when you pre-order my book you get four chapters and you get my entire notes 630 pages of notes with um it's got everything it's got shit that isn't even gonna make it into this book it's got um all my slides that has images, documents, all my proof. Uh, you get that when you pre-order my book for 25 bucks. Uh, and you get access to my private Telegram chat. Um, I got a bunch of lunatics in there. So <laughs> we have a great time. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can get that at buymeacoffee.com slash JFK book. And uh, yeah, you get access to all that stuff immediately. And then coreyhubes.org uh, is my website. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about uh, awesome. the next couple months is going to be good for me. Awesome. Well, I, I'm going to be supporting it. I've, I love the sound of all of this and we're going to talk loads. Thanks for coming on today. 